All right, saints of God, we are going to continue on tonight. This is part two of our series in the end of days. And I'm going to actually just give a quick recap of last week's teaching. And the first point I want to, I want to review here is the disciples ask for a sign. And the question I want to ask you, have you ever asked God for a sign? Have you ever asked God for a confirmation? I believe we all have. One of the most famous signs requested in the Bible were, were those of Gideon when, when God was calling him to become a judge over Israel. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 24, verses 1, 2, and 3. I'll be using the RSV translation for most of the word tonight, but I, I, I will use uh, King James for, for one, one verse. So it reads, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. This is a question that the disciples asked Jesus. And Jesus prophesied that, 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 that the second temple, which was the, the temple that was rebuilt in Jerusalem, would, would be destroyed. And Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD um, on Tisha B'Av. On Tisha B'Av, on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled, and there was not one stone left. Uh, 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 there was not one stone left sitting on top of another stone. It was, it was completely destroyed. So both the first temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, was destroyed on the ninth day of Av, the ninth day of the fifth month. The month is called Av, and that day is also called Tisha B'Av. So the first temple was destroyed on Tisha B'Av, and the second temple was destroyed on Tisha B'Av. And as you sit with Dr. Corral over the next few weeks, you're gonna, you're gonna hear the teachings on, on these in, in tremendous detail. So, and over these next several weeks, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna dive into the sign of the end times. So we're gonna address this question. I'm not gonna answer this question right now, but the question we, we ask is, what is the sign of the end of days? And we're gonna address a, port, a, port, a portion tonight, but this is such an extensive study. I believe we're gonna be answering this question for the next several weeks. As long as the Holy Spirit allows us to remain in the, in the series on the end of days, we're gonna keep diving in deeper and deeper and deeper. Amen. So the question, one of the questions I asked you last week is, is Revelation, the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, is Revelation just about future events? And I'll answer that question with a scripture, reading from Revelation 1, 19. Revelation 1, verse 19. And Jesus says to John, the beloved, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall come hereafter. This is really the answer to the question I just asked you. Revelation is not just a book about end time events. If you read the entire book of Revelation only thinking about end time events, you're gonna miss out on a good portion of Revelation because the book of Revelation, it, it, it's like looking at the creation from the, pers from the perspective of heaven. And from the perspective of heaven, Time is not measured in the, in the same way that time is measured on earth. Like a day is, is, a, a day is like a, a thousand years is like a day unto the Lord. And so um, we're, we're, we're looking at the earth from the perspective 
of heaven. And what Revelation shows us is the things that were before, the things which are right now, and the things that shall be in the future. Does that make sense? So it's a book about what was, what is, and what is to come. That's the answer to the first question. The next question I want to ask you, is the Bible a record of historical events? You know, there are many people that read the Bible that only use it to get a historical perspective of, 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 of history, I mean, of, 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 of events that have taken place. And yes, the Bible does contain history, but that is not the primary purpose of, of the scripture. The scripture is living. The scriptures are prophetic. And it, and it also speaks about things that were, things that are, and things that will be. Because the, the book of Revelation is also about, it is, it is also part of scripture. So whenever you read scripture, it's not just teaching you about what took place in somebody's life. It's also teaching you how, how you can apply these concepts and the, these character traits in your own lives as well. In addition, it can, it, can, it can teach you, the Holy Spirit can speak to you and, and show you how to handle various things that are going on in life. Like, for example, let's look at Genesis 25, verses 8 and 9. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. And then it goes on to say in verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Now, we know that is literal. We know that's historical. We know that, Ish we know that Ishmael and Isaac were involved in burying their father, Abraham. But even more so, remember I told you that the Bible, all of Scripture, it speaks about what was, what is, and what is to come. This is also a prophecy of what will take place in the end of days. Meaning, in the end, because in the scripture here, Isaac represents Israel, and Ishmael represents the, the, Arab, the Arab nations. There's going to be, a, and we see Isaac and Ishmael both involved in burying their father Abraham, and Abraham being the father of, of the Jewish faith. There is going to be a, a reconciliation taking place in the future between Israel and the Arab nations, and there will be a conversion that will take place among the nations, and they will accept the God of Abraham as, as, as the one and true God. Amen? Give you another Amen. example from Genesis chapter 45, verse 4 and verse 14. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Then in verse 14 it says, Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. So what we see taking place here, we see a, a, a reunion between two brothers who had not seen each other in over 22 years. I think it was at least 22 years. And so, and, and we, we all get so excited. Look, they, they're finally reunited, finally reunited. And there was a special bond between Joseph and Benjamin because these were the only two sons of Rachel. The, the, the other brothers were, were half-brothers, but, but Benjamin was his full-blooded brother through, through Rachel. But again, I'm telling you, Scripture is not just about past events. It's about that which was, which is, and which is to come. And so what's, when we see both brothers weeping on each other's necks, what's taking place here is they both prophetically saw in the Spirit, they both saw that in the future, the future tabernacles and, and temples would, would be destroyed on their respective properties. 
So Joseph saw a destruction of the temples taking place in Benjamin's territory. Benjamin saw the destruction of the tabernacle in Shiloh taking place in Joseph's territory. And that's what they're weeping, they're weeping future destructions. This is also weeping of, of future uh, Tisha B'Avs, where the future two temples were destroyed. Do you all see that? So uh, the, the point I want to make here is the Torah or the word of God is not just history, it is prophecy. And it's not just prophecy of future events, it's also prophecy about you, about where you are in life. If you ever, ever have a question, if you're ever seeking God for advice, you're ever seeking God for direction, the answer will be found in God's word. We can always turn to the Holy Scriptures and trust God to, to speak to us and reveal his will for our lives to us. Amen? Amen. And now I want to talk to you about the apple of God's eye. What is the apple of God's eye? And we'll, we'll, and we'll, we'll see that in, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to spend a lot of time in Zechariah over the next few weeks. And, and if you're studying about Tisha B'Av and the 17th of Tammuz and the fast of the 4th and 5th month, we're going to spend a lot of time in Zechariah, chapter 8 as well. So we'll, tonight we're, we're going to um, only look at Zechariah, chapter 2, verse 8. And I'll go ahead and read this to you. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. I want to read that to you again. But thus saith the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. What is the apple of God's eye? The apple of God's eye is an allusion to the nation of Israel. Israel, the, the, the Jewish people, are the apple of God's eye. And all of scripture is centered and focused around Israel. Yes, we learn about the nations. We learn about the nations. We learn about the Gentiles being grafted in. We see Jesus sending his disciples to even take the gospel to the ends of the earth in the Great Commission. But I also want you to see that the church does not replace Israel. That, that false doctrine is called replacement theology. And that is really an anti-Semitic doctrine, and it doesn't line up with God's word. Because Israel has a very special place in God's plan of salvation. And, and one title that God gives Israel is a title of endearment, and that the title is the apple of his eye. And, 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 and we see the centrality and the focus of Israel throughout the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation. And the next point I want to bring out is Israel and salvation. Does Israel have a part in God's, in God's salvation? And the answer is yes. And I'll answer to that for you from Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And this is Paul speaking, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Last, last week I explained to you that salvation is for the Jew first. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, where he spent 33 years on the, on, on the earth and, his three, and three and a half years of ministry, his ministry was only to the lost tribes of Israel. And on occasion, he did heal or, or deliver Gentiles, but that was not his primary focus. His primary focus was to the Jews. Make sense? And I also want to bring out here, salvation is for the Jew first and then for the Greek. 
Now, you may ask, what are the Greeks? Does that mean salvation is only for the Jews and those, uh, those that are Greek? No. The word Greek here is not just meaning the Greeks. It's a reference to all Gentiles. So what Paul is saying is that salvation is for the Jew first and then, and then for the Gentiles. And it's really just emphasizing Israel being the apple of God's eye. And why shouldn't be salvation be for the Jew first? Because the Israel was the only nation of 70 nations on, on, on the planet that said yes to receiving God's Torah. They took upon the yoke of heaven at, at Mount Sinai. And Jesus is the Jewish Messiah first, and then he is the, the Messiah of the entire world. Either tonight or next week we'll get into this, and I'll, 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 I'll talk to you about the, the mission of Messiah and how the mission of Messiah to the Jewish people is not the same as the mission of Messiah to, 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 to the nations. I'll give you an example. We as Gentile believers, we that are grafted into the vine, uh, we are not under 613 commandments. I think you should all say amen to that because I can barely keep a few commandments. Amen. <laughs> we are not under 613 commandments, but the Jews are under 613 commandments. One of those commandments is, is to keep the Sabbath day holy. That's one of the commandments. And there are commandments that apply to men. There are commandments that only apply to women. There are commandments that apply to, to, to all, dif all, all different types of belief, uh, you know, uh, different, uh, to different various people. There are commandments that only apply to the priest. And if I may just ask someone, if you can confirm for me, is, is Facebook Live up right now? Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. I got a text message saying that it wasn't. So um, so I appreciate you confirming that for me. So Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and, and he's also the Messiah of the entire world. And I'll give you an example here from Matthew chapter 15, verses 22 through 28. Matthew 15, 22 through 28. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and cried. Now I want you to notice here, this woman that cries out to Jesus is not a Jewish woman. She is of the nations. She is a Gentile. And she comes out and cries, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely possessed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. You see that, how Jesus... He's shown that his ministry is to the lost tribe of Israel. But this woman, this Canaanite woman, was so persistent. And I really believe that Jesus wanted to heal her. I believe Jesus was stretching her faith. And Jesus was causing her to stretch beyond any obstacle and to cry out to Jesus for healing. And Jesus noted her faith and, and, and healed her child. And her daughter was healed instantly. Sometimes we need to be very persistent in prayer. Sometimes we give up too early. Sometimes we don't keep pressing in, but what we learn here from, from this Canaanite woman is that we need to press in, amen? That regardless of the obstacles, 
because an obstacle does not mean the answer is no from God's perspective. Sometimes it may look like God is ignoring us, and he's not ignoring us. He's calling us to another level of faith. He's calling us to another level of persistence. And sometimes it's going to take fasting. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take fellowship. It's going to take, it's going to, it's going to, sometimes you just have to enter into a battle and that battle may be a prolonged battle. Amen. The the last thing I'll, I'll share here about Israel and salvation is how Paul preached in the synagogues. And let's look at Acts chapter 17, verse 1 verse 16, and verse 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day, with those who chance to be there. See in verse 17, he first began his ministry in the, te- in the synagogue, in the Jewish place of worship. In, and the word that's used here is the word argued, but this word argued is not it's a word in the sense of, of fighting with somebody to, to, to drive your point home. No, this is, this is a rabbinic way of teaching God's word. And so we, we see him first in the synagogue, and then we see him in the marketplace. So we, we, and we, see this, we see even Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, would always begin his ministry first with a Jew and then with a Greek. Does that make sense? And the next question I want to ask you all is, when will Messiah come? The answer to that scripture is found in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 through 44. Matthew 24, starting at verse 32. And this is Jesus speaking. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. And so what I want you to see here, the branch represents Israel. And and, and when the branch puts upon leaves, that means what Jesus is saying, the end is near when the, it, when the Jews return back to Israel. You know, if you were to ask this, if you were to bring up this question um, or scripture about 1,500 years ago, you'd be told that you were crazy because Israel was void of Jews for almost 2,000 years. After the exile, the Jews were again scattered to the four corners of the earth. And what Jesus is saying here, you know that the end is near when the Jews, when the Jews return to Israel. And this started happening in 1919 after the Dalfour Act was, was enacted, which, gave, which, which made the, land, the area of Palestine to, to become the Jewish homeland. And then Jesus says in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. So the end will not take place until after Israel is gathered from the nations back to the Holy Land, the land of Israel. That is a sign that we're living in the generation of the coming of Messiah. And as we Christians believe, the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Then in verse 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. So we don't know, we don't know the day that Messiah is coming. We don't know the hour. If anybody tells you that Messiah is returning on this day, don't believe him. Just dismiss them as a false prophet because no man knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven, only God the Father knows. But we know that we're living in that generation when, when the Jews return to Israel. And in that, so in 1919, we see the Balfour Act, the, the, I'm sorry, the Balfour Act uh, enacted. In 1948, Israel became a nation. Can you imagine for almost 2,000 years, Israel had not known statehood, but it became a nation in 1948, the fulfillment of one of the, of one of the greatest prophecies in, in, in the Bible. And what, what will be taking place in the days of the return of Messiah? It'll be just like the days of Noah. In verse, 30, in verse 37, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then it says in verse 40, which is prophetic of the rapture, then two men will be in the field. One is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken, one is left. Watch therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So I, I, but I do want you to know that the son of, and as in verse 44 says, for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That means we need to be ready at all times. We need to be walking lives worthy of our calling at all times. When we sin, we need to repent quickly. We need to do our very best to live lives of, of forgiveness, of love, of gentleness, uh, with, uh, abounding in all the fruits of the Spirit of God and witnessing and just, and just, and just uh, living lives worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. Amen? And what do we know? What we know from this is that Israel, that we know that Christ's coming is very near after Israel achieves nationhood. And that took place in 1948. Now, what year are we in right now? We are in the year 5780 on the Hebrew calendar. On our Gregorian calendar, we are in the year 2020. It's probably a year that most of us don't really want to remember because of the, because of the coronavirus pandemic. But I do want you to know that it, it, in the Hebrew calendar, because this, this, this teaching is taking place before Rosh Hashanah, we are in the year 5780. And the, the, the rabbis tell us that Messiah will return no later than the year 6000. But the rabbis also believe it's going to take place much sooner than 6000. Now, the next question I want to ask you is, as we, as we push along here, Will there ever be a time without war? Can you imagine, can any of you think about a time in your lives where th there was not war taking place in the world? I, 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 I cannot remember a time ever when there was not war taking place. But you know what? There will be a, a time when there will be no more war. And that is in the messi Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 20, I'm sorry, Isaiah 2, verses 2, 3, and 4. And it reads, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains 
and shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, one prophecy here is this pro there's going to be a tremendous earthquake that will take place, and there'll be a, 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 there'll be a change even in the landscape in Jerusalem, and, and that the, the mount where the temple will sit, the future temple will sit, is going to be even much higher than ever before, and it will be established as the highest of the mountains. So this is not only a prophecy of the stature and the greatness of the temple in Jerusalem, it's also telling us that the mountains in Israel are going to be raised up so high. It's going to be, it shall be raised above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Because all the world, all the nations of the world will recognize the, the holiness, the glory of the temple in Jerusalem. And they'll and they'll all they'll all they'll all they will all accept God to, to be their God, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob to be their God. And then it reads, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide between, uh, he shall decide for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall, neither shall they learn war anymore. So I can guarantee you one thing, we will not be reading the art of war when Messiah returns, because we will not be learning about war anymore. Amen? Now let's talk about the end of days. And this is, I'm going to read to you from Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. And in verse 25, it, it, it talks about the results of not obeying God. And Israel was given the land of Israel, and the land was, was, was allocated during the days of Joshua. And Moses gave a prophecy before he died, and he because. And he said, if you act corruptly by making a graven image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long upon it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. See what's taking place? Every time Israel fell into tremendous sin without repentance, they were scattered. This took place in the first temple period. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, were taken into captivity to Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. And then afterwards, they, they gathered back in the land. And in 70 AD, the Jews were scattered again to the, to the, to the four corners of the earth in, um, because, of, because of sin. And then in verse 30, it says, actually verse 29, but from, and this is, Jesus, this, is God, this is God prophesying, but from there, which means from the land of exile, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with your heart heart and with all your soul, with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. 
For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not fail you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. See, God prophesies that when they return to him wholeheartedly, he will bring them back to the land. And the last time we see the return was in statehood in 1948. And there have been many returns even since 1948. So at the end of days, we will see Israel return back to its land. Now I want to speak to you about the miraculous attribute of the land of Israel. I'm going to ask you just to repeat after me. The miraculous attribute of the land of Israel. And Leviticus 18.28 says, Lest the land vomit you out when you defile it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. I want to read that to you one more time. And I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Lest the land vomit you out when you defile it, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. See, Israel is a land like no other land among the lands of the entire world. There, is a, there, there, there are miraculous attributes of the land of Israel. It's a land like no other. The land of Israel has a certain attribute where it can only tolerate sins up to a certain limit. Isn't that incredible? The land will only handle so much sin before it vomits the, the people out. And God tells Israel in advance that if you misbehave, then you will be expelled from the land. See, during the days of the first temple period, the Israelites became so complacent, saying, we have the temple, so we'll, there's nobody that can drive us out. And so there were many that just gave into their, their, their idolatrous ways and, and, and didn't walk with God. And you know what? And they thought they were untouchable. They thought they would never be driven out because they had the temple. But you know what? The land will only tolerate so much, mis uh, so much bad behavior. And the sin got to a certain level. It, it hit a certain threshold and the land vomited the Israelites out. So because the land of Israel is a land that has a higher Kedusha, greater holiness than any land on, on the planet. And, and it, it will spoo you out if you don't walk with God. Then in verse 31, actually I'm going to turn to Leviticus 26, verses 31, 32, and 33. And it reads, And I will lay your cities waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I, will, and I will not smell your pleasing odors. Meaning that he's not, he's, he will not accept your sacrifice. And he says, and I will devastate the land so that your enemies will settle in it, shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. And I want, uh, not only, there's two things I want to share with you here. Not only will the land spoo you out if you don't walk in holiness. In addition, something will take, some, something else miraculous will take place in the land when the Jews are not in the land. And the question I'm going to ask you is, and it's, and it's related to the scripture we just read, what causes the land of Israel to become barren? It's a question I want to ask you. What causes the land of Israel to become barren? And the answer is also found in Ezekiel 36, verses 8 through 12. And 
It's also found in the scripture that we just read in Leviticus 26, 31 through 33. In verse 33, it says, I will scatter you among the nations. I will, and, and then it says, and your land shall be in desolation. So what do we see here? We see the Jews scattered. They are no longer in the land of Israel. And every time the Jews have been evicted or vomited out of the land of Israel, the land of Israel becomes a desolation. Isn't that incredible? This is complete. It doesn't matter how much they uh, water the land, it, it will never become green. Because God made a promise to, to the Israelites that when you, are at, when you are evicted from the land, that land of Israel will become barren. There's a relationship between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Israel is barren when the Jews are in exile. For 2,000 years, the land was totally barren. It was a desert. There was nothing physically attractive of the land of Israel. But when Israel became a nation in 1948, guess what, what happened? Israel became very, very green. The land flourished. I mean, if you look at Israel today, you can see all the greenery, all the, the fruits, the vegetables that are even exported to other nations. And you can see all the wineries. You can see all that the land of Israel produces today. And it's, it's, it's a promise that God made to the Jewish people. When they inhabit their land, the land will bring forth, will bring forth and it will be green. But whenever the Jews go into exile and are evicted out of, their, out of the Holy Land, the land will become a, a desert, a desolate waste. Again, Israel is barren when the Jews are in exile. I will make the land desolate and your foes who dwell upon it will be desolate. See, every time the enemies of the Jews are living in Israel, it could be of any other nation, it could even be Great Britain, when any other nation rules over Israel and, and the Jews are, not, are evicted, the land will not produce. But when they return, the land will produce. When Israel goes into exile, the land of Israel shuts down. Because the land of Israel will only remain faithful to the Jewish people. And the greatest sign of the end of days is the land of Israel flourishing under Jewish rule. The greatest sign of the end of days is the land of Israel flourishing under Jewish rule. Now, for most of our lives here online tonight, uh, I mean, for our entire lives, Israel has been a nation. But you know what? That, that's not true for, ev for everyone. Israel became a nation in 1948. And prior to that, Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party attempted to wipe out Jewry throughout the world. I want to read to you a quote that was made by Mark Twain probably roughly around 180 years ago. And Mark Twain, this famous American author, sent a letter to his family saying, and again, I want you to know this is Mark Twain speaking. These are not my words. These are Mark Twain's words. And he says in the letter to his family that a curse of witchcraft hangs over the Holy Land. People plant, people plant and plow and nothing grows. This was Mark Twain's analysis of the land of Israel. He thought there was a, 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 some type of demonic curse upon Israel that even when people plant, nothing grows. This was Mark Twain's observation when he went to Israel 180 years ago. But you know one thing he didn't realize? He didn't realize that this wasn't a witchcraft curse. This was a fulfillment of Torah. This was a fulfillment of God's word. 
And the scriptures say when, when Israel, when the Jewish people leave the land, then the land will not produce. So it wasn't witchcraft. This was fulfillment of biblical prophecy. There was another quote from Mark Twain. I don't have it here in my notes, but I, uh, something that Mark Twain had said, he goes, how do I know that God exists? And his answer was one word, the Jew. Because the Jewish people have gone through more persecution than any of the people on the earth. There have been so many nations on the earth that no longer exist because of destruction. But look at what Israel has survived. During these three-week period from Tishabah, from the 17th day of Tammuz, the 17th day of the fourth month, which is the month we're in right now, the 17th of Tammuz begins on Wednesday night, and the 9th of Av, the conclusion of the three-week period, the days of the, 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 these three weeks of Messianic miracles, will come to an end on, the, on Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av. During this three-week period, countless catastrophes have hit the Jewish people. For example, the walls of the first temple and the walls of the, the, walls of the second temple were both breached on, Tish, on the 17th day of Tammuz, different periods in history. The city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed on the ninth day of Av. Both, uh, both on the very same day. And the Jews were expelled from England on a Tisha B'Av. The Jews were evicted from Spain and Portugal during a Tisha B'Av. It's during all, uh, the Nazi party rose to power during this three-week three period. There have been so many calamities that the Jews have experienced during this three-week period. And, and what is the proof that God exists? The answer is the Jew, because the Jew survived them all. Even in the midst of every Holocaust, the Jews have survived. Amen? Now, this, I'm going to read to you a quote from the Talmud. The Talmud, which is a part of rabbinic literature, and, and the Talmud is probably one of the most authoritative texts that contains much of the oral Torah. Um, the Talmud is over 1,600 years old. And the Talmud says, Israel will gather from the ends of the earth, including blind and the lame, the pregnant and the birthing together. Meaning that we will emigrate, immigrate to Israel from the most remote places on a straight path. This is what the Talmud is saying, that there'll be, there'll be blind, there'll be pregnant women, there'll be lame, that will all come back to Israel from the ends of the earth, and they will come in a straight line. 1,600 years ago, this would not have been possible. Not, not by natural means. But this did begin to be fulfilled in after 1948 because the Jews were returning from all over the world, including Ethiopia, Russia, uh, Eastern Europe. They started returning from all over the world on airplanes. And they came in a straight line. There's no other way that a, birth, a birthing mother, a blind, the lame, could come on foot back to Israel in a straight line other than by, an, by aircraft. See, the, the Talmud wrote this over 1,600 years ago, but it took place in our generation. And so uh, that's another sign of the end of days, that the, the Israelites will, will gather back in their land in a straight line. And the greatest sign of the end is when the land of Israel produces fruit, as we see it doing even to this day. Now let's talk about the return of the Jews. Jeremiah 29, 14 says, I will be found by you, says the Lord, 
and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. We see this, you know, we've, we've seen this fulfilled since 1948. And then in Jeremiah 31 verses 8 and 9, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, which is right in line with, with, the, with, the, um, with the Talmud. The woman with child and her who is in travail together. A great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with consolations I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path. You see that? They will come back in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. So what, what I want you to see here is the centrality of Israel as the apple of God's eye. And the sign that we're living in the end times is just to look at the Jew, look at the Jewish people, because when we look at the apple of God's eyes, uh, God's eye, we can, then we can determine where we are in biblical prophecy and seeing where we are in end of times. There are many Christians that read the Bible and, and, and they completely ignore the Hebrew scriptures. They ignore the books from Genesis through Malachi. They only spend time in the New Testament and, and, and they, criticize, they criticize Christians that study Torah. They criticize Christians that, that, that use the Hebrew scriptures. You know what? Salvation is of the Jews. Amen. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. And, and, and every writer of the Bible is, is Jewish. We cannot extract the Jewishness of God's word. And we cannot forget that our Messiah, our bridegroom, is Jewish himself. Make sense? The Apostle Paul never ceased being Jewish. He, he was raised a Pharisee, he became a Pharisee. He became very, very jealous for the faith. But then when he, when he fell off his horse, he encountered Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and he had a conversion. That conversion was not a conversion of rejecting Judaism and embracing Christianity because the faith was not called Christianity yet. What he, he never ceased being Jewish. He continued being Jewish. But the conversion that took place is he now received the revelation that Christ Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews as well. And the ministry he was given was a ministry to the Gentiles. Remember I told you that the, the Jews are under 613 commandments? One thing I forgot to tell you is the Gentile converts are under seven laws, seven Noahide laws. So we as Christians that are on the line here, we are under seven Noahide laws. And they're very similar to the Ten Commandments, just a, a, a few differences. But if, if, but if, if you're a Jew, you are, you are under 613 commandments. If you are a Gentile believer, you are under seven laws. One of, those, one of those laws is to, is, is establish police, is to establish uh, laws of social justice. One of those commandments is not to commit adultery. One of those commandments is to have one God. Again, they're very similar to the Ten Commandments. But we as Gentiles are under the seven Noahide laws. Now what is, actually I'm gonna stop here, and next week we'll continue in this series and next week, I'm going to begin talking to you about the Messianic expectations. And what is the difference between the Jewish expectation of Messiah versus the Christian expectation of Messiah? 
And I'm also going to speak to you about the four exiles of, of the Jewish people, starting from Genesis chapter one, verse two. And then we'll, we'll then we'll, you know, then we'll go we'll go into Zechariah, we'll go into Daniel, we'll go into Revelation, and we'll talk about the four exiles and how that relates to end times. I'm spending a lot of time on introduction because um, I, I really want you to understand the purpose of end times and not to see end times as just nothing but doom and gloom. You know, when I speak to so many Christians, they are so afraid of end times. They are so afraid of persecution. They are so afraid of tribulation. God the Son gave the revelation from the book of Revelation to John to give the church hope. So, so the message that I give to you should be a message of hope. I'm not giving you a message that says you're not going to go through persecution. Because you know what? The church today is more persecuted than all the previous centuries uh, of, of Christianity combined. 